I do love serving a singing congregation. (laughs) Thank you, MJ. Our next reading, our final reading, comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, beginning with the ninth verse. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Theatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Here ends our second reading. And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The morning light just creeped through the tent flaps where Paul was sleeping and stirred him from his slumber. He got up from the ground being sore as he often was, sleeping on the ground night after night, made his way outside and started to get some food together. Not long thereafter, Luke, his companion, came out of his tent to join him. He could see that Paul was agitated. Something was on his mind, something he wanted to share And he turned to Luke and pointed across the Aegean Sea to the strip of land far in the distance and said, that's where we're going next. We're going to Macedonia. Luke, knowing Paul and the way that he functioned, knew not to argue. And they quickly began setting up their tents and the things that Paul used to make tents himself packed up their bags and made their way down to the shore where they took a boat and headed away on their next journey. Now, there's a lot that we can say about Paul, the Apostle Paul. One thing I think is pretty certain is that Paul would make a pretty awful local church minister. <laughs> he was incredibly stubborn, had a remarkable capacity to annoy people, even his close friends, who eventually would abandon him. And he was someone who was constantly restless, moving from place to place. But God does work in mysterious ways and calls each of us to various ministries, regardless of what our gifts and talents might be. And when I see this passage here, when I, when I see what Paul does in this passage, where he can hear this message, this call in his dream uh, from this man from Macedonia to come over to Macedonia, and he gets up and he does it, part of me, I have to admit, is a little bit jealous. Jealous that someone could just follow a dream or follow an urging on little more than a whim. 
Do you know what I mean? So often, life, you know, again, weighs us down. Life, we get stuck in routines or certain, certain things that, that confine us or hold us in. And we stay on that same path. Oftentimes, these things are well ingrained in us from an early age. When I was in elementary school, my sister and I uh, would have a competition to see who could save more money. Yes, we were good Yankees, and my parents taught us well. <laughs> so our 25-cent-a-week allowance, we would, like, store away. And again, we'd get these precious folded dollar bills that we'd tuck aside. And even though we'd go down to the penny candy stores and spend a few cents here or there, the real challenge was how much did we have left over, and did, we have more than my, did I have more than my sister? That sort of instinct towards following the rules and doing the right thing stayed with me. I remember my parents had me sign me up to play basketball league at one point which is very amusing because I had no idea how to play basketball. And I was the only one who showed up not knowing the rules how to play basketball, but this is what I was told to do, so I did it. But one thing I didn't do was actually follow those urgings that were inside me and leading me somewhere else. And so I read this passage, and I think about Paul, and I'm like, well, you know, how, how can I be more like Paul? How do we get the courage to be more like Paul? How do we actually listen to those dreams when they're there and nudging us? How do we answer that call? When I was in high school, we often had these assembly halls where we'd sit uh, in this you know, wood-paneled assembly hall with these very uncomfortable wooden chairs designed to keep us awake, uh, no doubt, in the mornings, uh, as we listened to outside speakers come in and share various wisdom, pieces of wisdom from their lives. Well... Uh, one's a term, there were three terms, at the opening of every term, the headmaster would get up and be the one to deliver this talk to the students who were there. And this, our headmaster, again, was, a, was an Episcopal priest, and so these talks were more like sermons than they were uh, general talks. And even though we might try to ignore them as best as possible, sometimes these talks actually sunk in and made us think. And even now, there's certain things that he said that I still remember all these years later. I remember him quoting one thing in one of his speeches. Born originals, how does it come to pass that we die copies? Born originals, how does it come to pass that we die copies? Or another time, uh, him quoting from T.S. Eliot, where Eliot's narrator is looking out on the remains of civilization of his day. And he says, here were a decent godless people, their, own, their only monument, the asphalt road, and a thousand lost golf balls. <laughs> or he would, our headmaster would remind us that in spite of all the advances of modern medicine, In spite of all the advances of modern science, the mortality rate stays at a constant 100%. (laughs) And believe it or not, these things actually made an impact. One thing that I would remind myself of is that we only live once. We have only one life. That's it. And oftentimes, it can be all too fickle and disappear. I mean, we could tragically get hit by a car on the, on the way home from church just this morning. You could get a diagnosis for a disease that you don't expect. You just don't know what can happen in life, and you only get one chance at it. And this is one of these things that, that made an impact on me and rattled around in my brain. 
So after I graduated from college, I went over and taught high school in England for a year. And when I came back, I started working as an investment banker at a startup investment bank in Boston called America's Growth Capital. I was an investment banking analyst, which means I got very, very good at Excel. And we were, uh, I think I can safely say, the hardest working investment bankers in Boston. Uh, we worked New York hours in Boston. So that meant <coughs> that we were working over 100 hours a week um, as an analyst uh, every week in this banking firm. So I would regularly get up in the morning before my sister was awake, because we were, we were roommates at the time. Uh, I'd get up before she was awake, and I'd come back at night after she was in bed. And so there would be three or four days in a row where I wouldn't see my sister because I was working the whole time. And I remember I, I, I sort of felt at one point, regardless of the hours, I'm like, I don't really want to be doing this. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Now, usually the, the usual thing was a stint of two years in an investment bank so that you can set yourself up for other things. But after a few months, I was like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm leaving. And I remember those words just rattling around in my head. You only live once. And so... At that point, I turned my back on a career in finance, much to my father's dismay, and walked out of the firm and didn't look back. Now, it's relatively easy for someone who's 23 years old, 24 years old, to make that kind of a choice. After all, I was relatively unencumbered at the time. Similarly, for Paul to follow his dreams and go across to Macedonia and listen to that call was relatively easy. At that point, he didn't have family or possessions or other things that weigh him down. Well, as we grow older, we get things that weigh us down. It makes it harder for us to listen to these dreams or nudgings that God might be calling us to. I, uh, the, I love that term, golden handcuffs. It's one of these things that so many of my peers uh, have. You know, there are pros and cons to it. All of a sudden, you get a nice job and a nice salary, and you get used to a particular standard of living based on that job and that salary. And even though things might not be great, you're like, well, I can't really leave because I can't leave behind the things that I have. But what if we were to actually try and make a decision to intentionally unencumber ourselves so that we could have the freedom to listen to a calling in a new direction? What if we were intentional about trying to shed ourselves of things that might shackle us, regardless how tempting they might be, so that we can have more freedom to do what God might call us to do? When I was in high school, I was a big Latin, Latin person. I loved Latin. And then my freshman year of college, I also took Greek. And I really liked Greek, and I was thinking about being a classics major, and I was introduced to this, uh, introduced to this Latin program in Rome, intensive Latin program in Rome, uh, with this crazy Carmelite monk named Reggie Foster, um, one of the Pope's Latin secretaries, one of the few places on the planet where they actually spoke, spoke Latin. And so there were these classes in spoken Latin, and, and I didn't go to them when I was in college, but after I'd left this investment banking firm and I was getting ready to go to divinity school, I was like, you know what, I always wanted to do this. I think I'm going to go over to Rome and study Latin. I guess that's what most people think of. <laughs> and the problem was, I had no idea about the logistics of this whatsoever. The biggest problem was finding a place to live. Because I was going to be there for eight to ten weeks in, in the middle of Rome, and you go online uh, to go look up places to stay in Rome, and it's all set up towards tourists. So the cheapest thing you're going to get is, you know, one to $200 a night. And as an unemployed future divinity school student, that wasn't exactly in my, in my budget. Um, and so being the wise young man I was, I went ahead and bought a plane ticket anyway 
booked a hostel for a couple days and said, well, I'll figure it out when I get there. And I literally only brought a little teeny backpack with me for eight weeks, uh, most of which was taken up by a massive dictionary that weighed about seven pounds. (laughs) But I went. I was unencumbered. I had the freedom to do it. And if I'm honest, part of me misses that. I'm, I, I miss that, those moments when I was that unencumbered that I could just do that. Do you remember those times? But of course, being able to follow your dreams like Paul is more than just wrestling with the fact that we only live once. It's more than trying to be unencumbered. It also depends what we're aiming at. Let's say you want to take a risk to go make a ton of money. Any business venture, any, any entrepreneurial venture involves trying to take a risk in order to make money. The problem with those types of risks, though, is that oftentimes they don't work out, and when they don't, everything sort of falls apart because it's all based upon that making money. Let's say you want to go take a risk to fulfill some personal ambition that's ego-driven. Again, any risk has risks associated with it. Any following any dream has risks associated with it. If it's driven by your ego, if it doesn't work out, well, then your ego gets crushed. But someone like Paul, Paul was taking risks because he was following something that he was passionate about. Paul was not, making it, Paul was not going over to Macedonia to make any money. He wasn't going over to Macedonia to become famous. He was going over to Macedonia because he was following something that he was passionate about that drove him deeply. And so, therefore, whether it was fully successful or not mattered less than being able to actually follow that passion. That made the difference. And again, things did not always work out for Paul. That's one thing that's remarkable, reading Acts and the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's letters. Paul had a lot of failures that went on. He got beaten. He got thrown into prison. He got mocked. Paul did not live an easy life. But it was a life that was in line with his passions. During my Easter sermon, I mentioned when I left the church I was working in in Iowa. And I talked about how burnt out I was and run down I was, and I made the decision to leave. And that decision, I mean, one thing, that I, one thing about that decision was I, I kept coming back to, you know, what am I doing this for? Why am I working in a church? And if what I'm doing is not bringing me closer to God and not bringing me on some sort of path of spiritual fulfillment, then I've got to go find a new direction because this is not going in the right way. And so when I left Iowa, I certainly didn't do it for the money because then I was unemployed and moving in with my mother, which is always fun. Um, I certainly didn't do it for the ego uh, because there's nothing more soul-destroying than being like, great, well, there (laughs) there goes my job. I'm sort of out there drifting alone. But I said, I've got to follow what it is that I should be doing. I need some sort of direction that needs to be there. A remarkable thing about this story in Acts is that when Paul shows up in Philippi, he does his normal preaching routine. I'm sure he got spat at. He probably got mocked on the streets of Philippi as he was trying to preach from the corners. You know, preachers on the street corners probably weren't very well received back then, and they're not very well received now. And then Paul uh, and Luke go down to the river where they hope it's a place of prayer on the Sabbath day. And they run into this group of women led by Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So she probably is a pretty wealthy woman, a small business owner herself. And she becomes the pillar of that church in Philippi. You have to realize how remarkable this little story is. 
ancient Greece was incredibly misogynist. I mean, it was so misogynist, uh, the ancient Greeks believed that women were not fully developed men. I'm serious. Uh, Women were legally beneath men in every possible sense in Greek society. And Paul indeed reflected some of these patriarchal norms that were in his society. Uh, Again, was unfortunately much damage over the years, but nevertheless, he was reflecting uh, his larger society. But here he was following his dreams, and what does he run into? He runs into the sense of like, wow, if I'm going to actually follow my dreams, looks like I'm going to have to get used to having women lead the show here. And Lydia becomes the pillar and leader of this church in Philippi. That's one of the amazing things that happens when you can take that step out and say, sure, why not? I'm going to take this risk because then you end up meeting people that change the way you see things, change your perspective and stretch you in different ways. Afterwards, again, you look at the end of Romans, Paul's writing to Phoebe as a deacon in the church of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church today still does not allow women to be deacons, but there's a female deacon in the church in Rome, that Paul obviously loves and admires and respects and, and, and lifts up in a place of leadership. Why? Because he runs into people like Lydia. He can say in Galatians that, you know, in Jesus Christ, there is no male or female, no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. Because we're all one in Jesus Christ. How does Paul come to see that? By his following of his dreams. After I left America's growth capital, the investment bank, I uh, ended up starting doing writing, which is something that I've pursued as a sort of hobby and passion ever since, but it started after that. Uh, I, start, I worked as a security guard. I learned how boring working as a security guard can be. Uh, I also worked as a liquor salesman <laughs> for a brief time, uh, and for a boy growing up in a privileged suburb, having gone to places, a place like Harvard College, and then working in the world of liquor sales in Boston, you meet some colorful characters that um, expands your mind about uh, how the world works. And that was really helpful. Uh, I could tell you some really, really colorful stories about my boss. All these different things happened. I met these different people who changed my mind because I decided to leave that bank. I would never have met them otherwise. When I, uh, when I decided to go to Rome, and I didn't know where I was going to live, this is a true story, uh, the day before I was going to leave, I went down to the movie theater on Boston Common. And I was walking out of the movie theater, and I ran into a friend of mine from high school who I hadn't seen in, in six years. And Mike and I sort of caught up. He's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm going to Rome tomorrow. And he's like, oh, really? One of my good friends from Holy Cross is in Rome. You should, you should look him up and say hi to him. And I'm like, okay. I give him my email address. We exchange things. And I, I'm like, okay, I'm never going to hear back from this. Well, Mike goes back, immediately emails his friend, who then immediately emails me. I land in Rome, and I go out for a drink with him, and we're chatting. And I'm like, by the way, I have no place to live. He's like, well, because he was working for the American school in Rome. And he's like, well, you can crash on my couch for now. I was like, okay. So I crashed on his couch for four weeks. <laughs> Until he had to move out. And then one of his colleagues at the school really needed someone to, to cat sit his 18-year-old, her 18-year-old cats. And so I was living in her house, you know, cat sitting her 18-year-old cats, praying each morning those cats wake up alive. Um, <laughs> and I managed to make it through the entire summer of Rome without spending a dime on rent. I still do not know how that happened to this day. Um, and again, I had an amazing experience in Rome 
I mean, that's where all of a sudden my call to the ministry got truly nurtured. I was surrounded by all these seminarians in the Roman Catholic Church, other people who were intensely religious. We had these incredible discussions, read these incredible mind-opening things that would never have happened if I hadn't take that, taken that journey. And similarly, if I hadn't left that church in Iowa, if I had stuck it through, which I could have done, I wouldn't have had a chance to go over to Nigeria and have this incredible experience in Nigeria that was life-changing. I, wouldn't have, I would never have gotten back into writing. And I wouldn't be right here walking this ground in front of you at First Congregational Church. There's a lot of things that you could say about the Apostle Paul, positive and negative. But one thing you most certainly can say about him is that his monument is not an asphalt road or a thousand lost golf balls.